I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we will preview the upcoming Supreme Court term, which begins, as it does every year, on the first Monday of October. For those of you keeping track at home, that is Monday, October 5th. The court has already accepted a handful of headliner cases, including three we'll focus on today. Uh, Enwell versus Abbott, about the principle of one person, one vote. Friedrich versus California Teachers Association, about unions and free speech. And Fisher versus University of Texas, about affirmative action. After last term's blockbuster finish with rulings on marriage equality, the Affordable Care Act, the death penalty, and others, the court has set itself up for another exciting round of decisions with the possibility of accepting additional cases about abortion, religious exemptions, and more. Joining me to discuss what's next at the Supreme Court are two of the country's leading constitutional commentators. Kenji Yoshino is the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Constitutional Law at the New York University School of Law. He specializes in constitutional law, anti-discrimination law, and law and literature. Kenji's also the author of the superb new book, Speak Now, Marriage Equality on Trial, which he discussed with me in a wonderful program here at the Constitution Center in June. You can watch it on our website at constitutioncenter.org. Josh Blackman is an associate professor of law at the South Texas College of Law. He specializes in constitutional law and the intersection of law and technology. Josh is also the author of another great book, the critically acclaimed Unprecedented, The Constitutional Challenge to Obamacare. Josh and I discussed that book at a Cato Institute forum last year, which is also online. Kenji, Josh, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having us. Let us begin with the one-person, one-vote case. And I want to make sure that I have the uh, pronunciation correct of the title. It is Evenwell versus Abbott, unless one of you tells me that it's Evanwell. And uh, Kenji, why don't we start with you? Can you tell me what the constitutional issues in the case are? Sure. So um, since the Reynolds versus Sims case in 1964, the court has embraced the principle of one person, one vote, which essentially means that um, you should be representing the same number of individuals when you serve in a representative capacity. And the question that's presented in this case, which comes out of Texas, is what the denominator is when we're thinking about um, the population. So are we supposed to use the total population in the jurisdiction, or are we only supposed to use the eligible voters uh, within the jurisdiction? So obviously this, these two approaches would lead to very different results. There's a 1966 case called Burns versus Richardson in which the court said, you know, it's really up for the state uh, to make either choice with regard to its state uh, representatives. And so the Supreme Court has been kind of studiously hands off about this. But the challenge in Texas says, uh, no, you can't use a the plaintiff there said you can't use a total population approach. You have to simply use a eligible voter approach. And the Supreme Court has uh, mandatory um, appellate jurisdiction or had to take a mandatory appeal from that uh, case and didn't just do a summary affirmance, um, but rather teed up the question of whether or not the proper 
uh, way of thinking about the population was the total population or the eligible voter population. Thank you so much, Kenji, for that great uh, introduction to the issues. Josh, which of the positions do you find more constitutionally persuasive, the argument that the Constitution requires states to draw their districts based on registered voters or total population, and why? So I'll admit, I'm on the fence about this case. I don't really have a strong position either way, but we start, as always, with the text of the Constitution. And the 14th Amendment says, no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction equal protection of the laws. And what does person mean in this case? And uh, when the Supreme Court decided the Reynolds v. Sims case that Kenji mentioned a moment ago, deciding that one person, one vote, they were looking to the text of the 14th Amendment. But not all persons can vote, right? Only citizens can vote. You have to be over the age of 18 to vote. Uh, uh, there are certain, certain disenfranchisements for felons to vote, um, and all those have been upheld constitutionally. Um, so it's not simply enough to say that all persons can vote. They have to actually decide what is a person. Um, so uh, there are various arguments being presented in this case, and just to take an easy one, um, in the state of Texas where I live, there are a significant number of non-citizens, people who are not citizens and cannot vote. Yet under the various formulas, they're counted under the total uh, voting population. And the Evanwell plaintiffs assert that this uh, accounting of non-citizens dilutes their vote because you're effectively affording more representation to districts with a, a larger population who cannot vote for diluting the vote. Um, and, and this case, uh, and I'll speak maybe for Kenji can comment, someone came out of the blue. Um, the court hadn't really decided this issue or even had, it, had the opportunity to look at it in decades. Um, and this case was brought for the specific purpose of teeing up the Reynolds v. Sims question. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, the uh, the case here is brought by a gentleman named Edward Bloom, who also brought the Fisher case, the other case we'll be discussing later. So these were very deliberate challenges um, to to various aspects of voting law that could have uh, uh, serious repercussions if the court indeed holds that the denominator, as Kenji said, must be limited to uh, 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 those who can vote. Well, Kenji, let's really dig into the text and history of the equal protection clause. Uh, defenders of arguing that uh, apportionment rather than voting population should count note that in the original Constitution, Article 1, Section 2, apportionment among the states of members of Congress was based on the number of persons rather than eligible voters. They say this supports the idea the founders intended to be apportionment based on people, not eligible uh, or registered voters. And then there's a 14th Amendment history, too, in a very interesting brief filed by the Constitutional Accountability Center saying that the framers of the 14th Amendment, too, had in mind persons and not eligible voters. Can you tell us more about what you think of that history? Yeah. So, I mean, I think Josh teed it up really well. And um, really, um, I, I think this is going to be a close case as well um, insofar as um, uh, on the one hand, the history that you described is is obviously completely accurate. So you have, you know, the body of the Constitution, Article One, Section Two. You have uh, the framers of the Fourteenth Amendment sort of doubling down on that principle uh, later on um, when um, the Fourteenth Amendment is ratified. But you know, as Josh was saying, um, you know, we can say that there have been exceptions to this notion of persons. So people under 18 are persons, felons are persons, and so on and so forth. I think the only thing that uh, might tug against that uh, understanding is that um, states have long been understood to, and I don't think many people um, understand that states have long been able to give non-citizens the right to vote. So it's completely within a state's uh, uh, power 
to give a non-citizen the right to vote if it so chooses. So it seems a little bit perverse to say that a state could actually give the franchise uh, to somebody who is a non-citizen, but wouldn't be allowed to count non-citizens in its denominator. But I also have to say, just as a, someone who's a legal realist and who takes a pretty practical approach to these cases, that I think the thing that's really going to tell here is just practice, you know, that um, we often sort of go by uh, just how many laws or how many um, practices we're going to have to upend uh, if we come to a particular constitutional conclusion. This is what Philip Bobbitt calls the prudential modality, right? So under that kind of consequentialist reasoning, you know, the long practice has been to think about uh, the denominator as being persons rather than eligible voters. And so I think that's going to tell. Um, all that said, if I were to argue against myself, you know, the Hawaii case, the uh, Burns case that I alluded to earlier, actually concerned an issue that went the other way, that the legislature made a choice going in the other direction that said we want uh, not the total population, but simply eligible voters. So uh, the court has allowed states to go in the other direction. But I think the point here is that uh, the court, I believe, will ultimately come down on the side of, yes, the um, state gets to decide uh, whichever way it decides. And Texas has decided for the total population route. And so that would be protected in the same way that Hawaii would be in making the opposite choice. If pushed to the wall with regard to uh, whether or not um, which approach to take uh, to mandate uh, nationwide, I find it hard to believe based on the practice point just as much as the historical point. I think the practice point would actually tell more strongly that the court wouldn't take the total population approach. Very interesting. Josh, you said the case came out of the blue. Why did the court take it? There was, there was not a circuit split. I want you to help me channel the views of the justices who may have been eager to embrace uh, a voting population and not apportionment. And then on what grounds would they so decide, given the fact that uh, text, original understanding, and precedent seem to, uh, or at least Kenji's argued, that those favor uh, allowing the states to decide which denominator to choose? Right. So um, in 2001, there was a case called Chen v. City of Houston, which raised similar issues. And the court didn't take that case, but Justice Thomas filed a dissent from denial of certiorari, what's called a dissent if you want to be a cool kid. And uh, <laughs> nice. Justice Thomas said, we, we need to take a case like this. So, um, you know, you only need four votes for certiorari. So even if there aren't five votes to reverse the lower court, there may be at least three and maybe plus one justice who uh, had enough interest to, t- to take it, right? Uh, but the more difficult question is how to resolve this. And there have been, Jeff, you mentioned a couple uh, dozens of amicus briefs followed by various groups, political scientists saying, you know, uh, here's how virtually every state in the union compiles their districting maps, right? And if the court would rule like this, you would upend, um, you know, a significant amount of practice. Uh, so you might say, you know, why would the Supreme Court upend a voting uh, practice that is, you know, approved of by virtually everyone in the country? Well, the answer to that question is Shelby County Beholder. There's the case a couple of years ago where the Supreme Court found provisions of the Voting Rights Act was unconstitutional. This was the very Voting Rights Act that had just been reauthorized by Congress by you know a near unanimous vote a couple of years earlier. So uh, uh, frankly, the mere fact that a lot of people like this regime uh, isn't necessarily a good indication that the court will uphold it. And and uh, Shelby County is Exhibit A in that in that brief. Kenji, uh, some have argued that a uh, counting on the basis of eligible voters, not apportionment, would favor Republicans. And, and Josh mentioned that this case was brought by the guy who brought the 
Fisher case, uh, do, do, do you agree with those who say that, you know, it's an effort to favor the interests of the Republican Party, or do you think it's a principled and open constitutional question? Well, I mean, I do think that the effect um, of it is going to favor Republicans overall, because what we're talking about um, in many jurisdictions is um, undocumented aliens who would have uh, the right to be counted under one uh, metric, the population metric, but not under the registered voter metric. So, um, you know, I think that's as far as I'll go in terms of, of saying we know what the consequence of the suit is. And I'm sure the people who are bringing the suit knew what the consequence um, of the suit was. Um, with regard to the, the earlier point, you know, I, I, I take the point really seriously that you know, Shelby County was certainly a, a revolution in the uh, voting rights uh, realm. But I think what's interesting about this in, in distinction to Shelby County is that the existing practice under Burns is really to respect state sovereignty. I think that one of the things that concerned uh, the chief in uh, Shelby County was that there's a kind of denigration of the states going on where he said, you know, the South was not what, what it once was and that it actually demeans the sovereignty of the states vis-a-vis -vis each other to say that they're good states and bad states or good jurisdictions and bad jurisdictions. And here, I, I don't really see the same kind of denigration. I'm curious to, to hear whether or not Josh does, but I, I just don't see the same degree of concern from a state sovereignty perspective. And indeed, the status quo seems to favor state sovereignty by allowing the states to choose in either direction, whether uh, the total population approach or the eligible voter approach. So, you know, I think that one thing that would be interesting is if the court looked at Burns and said, Burns, after this uh, many decades of uh, the voter rights revolution is no longer good law. Um, but as it stands, the status quo is that the states get to choose either way. Well, Josh, for the last word on Evan, well, can you answer Kenji's question and try to channel the conservative justices here? Might some be sympathetic to the idea that state sovereignty requires the states to choose either way? How will Justice Kennedy vote, and uh, and how will the other conservatives vote in this case? Oh, you asked so much for me, Jeff. Um, so <laughs> You're I up think, for it. I think the, I think the shorter answer is um, this is not actually about respecting state sovereignty, but under the principle that the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, uh, abrogate state sovereignty. Indeed, it's the exact opposite. Well, usually conservatives are uh, pushing for stronger states' rights. Here, who's defending this but Governor Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas? It's not very often that uh, uh, the governor of, of Texas is, uh, is, 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 uh, is taking these sorts of positions. Um, now, now, what is the, uh, now, what is the court going to do here? Uh, I'll go with Kenji. I have no idea. I think this is a, this is a close, close case. And because we have so little to go on, um, I mean, last year we had this Arizona redistricting legislation case, and that one came out uh, in a somewhat, you know, unexpected manner uh, over what, what the phrase the legislature means in the Constitution. Um, I think this case was similar overtone. So I, I would, I, I'll answer a question for other ones, I'll just as Kenny will vote, but, but not for this one. I think this one, this one I'll, I'll leave up in the air. Thank you for your prudence, and I'll certainly come back and, uh, and ask you about uh, Justice Kennedy. Uh, on the next case, which is uh, the memorably named Friedrich versus California Teachers Association. Uh, Josh, why don't you tell us what the issues are in this case? Sure. So um, uh, unions ain't what they used to be in this country. Uh, there was a point in this country where virtually, you know, I think one in three employees was a member of a union. Uh, but in recent years, due to things like right-to-work laws, uh, that number has plummeted. 
And one of the few bastions of strength for, for unions is in the public sector, for example, public school teachers. Um, and as the court has held in a case called Abood, which is about a 30-year-old case, um, uh, and some cases before that, uh, a public employee can't be forced to be a member of the union because of some First Amendment values there. But the union can still charge a fee, what's called an agency fee, to the employee. And the purpose of the agency fee is actually quite limited. It doesn't involve any sort of political lobbying. All it involves are the cost of bargaining. And, and these fees have to be very accurately calculated, that the union must separate the activities for lobbying and things of that nature with actually collective bargaining, which, which ostensibly benefits the employee. Okay, so where are we now? Um, this case, Abood, created that distinction, saying that as long as the fees are limited to um, – you know, the, the actual bargaining uh, costs, the non-member can be charged this. Um, and a number of Supreme Court decisions in the last couple of years, one of which was called Knox v. SCIU, uh, and then Harris v. Quinn from a couple of years ago, uh, the court, and Justice Alito in particular, has strongly hinted that the Abood decision is actually unconstitutional, that it violates the First Amendment. That is, forcing a public employee to uh, pay a fee, effectively to subsidize the union, is forcing them to associate and subsidize speech that they don't agree with. Um, now, the, 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 the lower courts in this case are bound by a boot, um, but the challengers know this. The, it's a bunch of California public school teachers um, uh, 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 should know this, uh, but they are appealing this up to the Supreme Court, and the court's taken this. Um, and uh, the, 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 Kenji can give his opinion, but if the votes in Harris v. Quinn and Knox v. SAU were what they were, there's a pretty good chance that Abood will be no more. The Abood will not abide, so to speak. <laughs> and we will uh, we'll have a situation where public sector unions can no longer compel non-members to pay anything. And this would be uh, crippling for public sector unions because they people will just be able to free ride. They'll be able to get whatever benefits the union provides and not pay any dues. Uh, and th- this would be a serious body blow to the uh, to the labor movement. Okay, well, thanks for setting that case up so well. So, Kenji, help our audience understand whether you think Abood should be overturned and, sh- and whether it will be overturned. What, what did Abood rest on? What, what, was it correctly decided in your view? And is the writing on the wall for it? Yeah, so I do think that Abood was correctly decided um, because uh, the decision really rested on the fact that there is um, a law uh, that places certain responsibilities, you know, on uh, unions to engage in certain forms of collective bargaining. So, if the law is imposing responsibilities on the unions themselves, then the unions should be able to draw more broadly on the workforce that they're actually bargaining on behalf of. And Abud was actually quite careful in distinguishing, you know, as Josh admirably laid out. Um, between um, the kinds of ideological activities that unions uh, engage in, uh, say, supporting the Democratic Party, which you are not allowed to charge these agency fees for, or if you do charge them, it can be reimbursed, and the collective bargaining activities that unions engage in uh, for which uh, these agency fees can be charged to non-members. I do see the argument on the other side, you know, which is to say that if you go back to cases beginning with, you know, Willie versus Maynard, you know, the license plate case uh, where there's an objection to uh, force speech on license plates, you know, all the way through the long line of compelled speech cases that you're forcing people to speak in certain ways um, when you 
take non-members of a union and then collect dues from them. But I think those uh, forced speech concerns are much more attenuated once you take off the ideological speech uh, uh, provisions um, and then leave only the collective bargaining aspects of the um, of of the fees. With regard to what I think the court is going to do, um, you know, Harris is the relevant precedent, uh, again, as Josh said, and I think it's very worrisome from uh, the perspective of those who would want to see uh, Abood um, remain good law, as I do myself. Uh, when I, as I read Harris versus Quinn, I mean, I think a fair reading is that, you know, what happened in Harris was that uh, they distinguished it on factual grounds. So, you know, a bare majority of the court said that the employees in uh, who were um, affected in Harris were partial uh, public employees uh, rather than public employees per se. So they kind of uh, hived off this uh, category or subcategory of public sector employees uh, to uh, skirt the issue of a boot. Um, of whether or not to overrule Abood. But if you look at the proportion of time that Alito's majority opinion in Harris spends on how wrong Abood was vis-a-vis the percentage of the opinion that uh, it spends on uh, this partial public employee idea, um, the former exceeds the latter by, you know, about, you know, at least a third, if not 50%. So, you know, I think Alito's uh, opinion on this is really clear, and uh, you know he got you know five votes for the uh, entire opinion. So uh, this is something that is concerning. Going back to one of the things that Josh said earlier, the Shelby County case, and we'll also see in the Fisher case. This is also classically out of the Roberts Court playbook, right? Of sending a shot across the bow. Uh, and I actually do admire this because it gives people notice about what they have to argue uh, before engaging in a categorical overruling of a case. So uh, in the same way that we had the Northwest Austin case uh, sort of um, hinting that uh, Shelby County was on the way before Shelby County uh, did what it did, uh, so too could we see the Harris case as being as uh, presaging what might be afoot uh, in, the, in the Friedrichs case. So you know, this might be an admission against interest, given that I like Abood, uh, but, you know, it's, it's, I'm, not, I'm not particularly uh, optimistic about it. If I were to have one ray of hope about it, it would be Kagan's dissent, where she underscores that uh, one of the factors, as all of us know, in whether or not the court will overrule one of its precedents is the reliance uh, that has been placed on the earlier precedent. So Abood dates back to 1977. And reliance interests are particularly strong, the court has said, in the realm of contracts. Uh, And so if we think about uh, the thousands of contracts that would be affected, um, Kagan says, uh, the reliance interests uh, speak very, very loudly under the stare decisis analysis for keeping uh, Abood as good precedent. Interesting. Uh, Josh, so both you and Kenji agree that uh, there may be writing on the wall for Abood, but help our listeners understand what is the core of Justice Alito's critique. In, in, in the uh, uh, Friedrich briefs, the petitioners said that the union's political and non-political activities were so intertwined that it's impossible for an objecting worker to tell whether they'll be subsidizing activity they don't endorse. Uh, is that one of Justice Alito's concerns or are there others? And, and can you basically help us understand his case against Abood? Right. So the case goes like this. <clears throat> when you have a public sector union and they're negotiating an increase in wages, right? Who are paying those wages? Taxpayers, 
when the uh, union negotiates for uh, an hourly concession that, that that certain parts of employees get, you know, more hours, whatever it happens to be, who who bears the brunt of that cost? The taxpayers. So the argument is actually that virtually everything that a public sector union does invariably goes back to the public fisc, and that there's no meaningful distinction between, you know, lobbying the legislature, um, uh, fundraising and supporting a, a, a member of the state legislature to, you know, support the union, versus negotiating directly with the government, that effectively the public sector union is negotiating with the government itself at every single juncture, and that itself is a public act. And I think that Justice Alito sees serious uh, compelled speech issues as well as, uh, uh, I think, just some freedom of association issues lurking in the background as well. Kenji, what do you think about Justice Alito's argument, ably channeled by Josh? Yeah, so I, I think it's a strong argument. You know, if, if I were to counter, I would say that one of the things that it uh, might not give enough weight to, uh, that it scants, is the time-old distinction between the government or time-honored distinction between the government as a sovereign and the government as an employer. You know, so we've driven that wedge in context after context, whether that's, you know, uh, the Dormant Commerce Clause or whether that's um, this kind of context. So we treat the government very differently according to whether it's operating as a sovereign or a regulator uh, and whether or not it's operating as an employer. Uh, and with regard to collective bargaining uh, issues, it seems really clear that the government is operating as uh, an employer rather than as a regulator. So the worry would be that if you don't see that distinction here, then it could have knockoff effects for that distinction in other areas of law. And this is a very well-settled area of law. I should also say, um, Jeff, uh, before we leave this case, that there's also a fallback position uh, in the case where... Uh, the idea is that even if the court doesn't overrule Abood, uh, there's a position that says that the opting out regime should change into essentially an opting in regime so that non-members should not have to opt out of paying fees um, that go to political activity, but rather should be able to sort of opt out only once and then be excused unless each individual uh, non-member explicitly agrees to pay it. So I just want to underscore that, you know, there are two issues in this case and that there's an intermediate position, uh, even if the court doesn't um, go either for overruling Abood or just retaining the status quo. Great. Uh, well, last beat on this, Josh, you did promise to channel Justice Kennedy uh, in Friedrich. So how's he going to vote? <laughs> you know, Justice Kennedy didn't break off to concur separately in Harris. Uh, this is the 2014 decision. Usually when Justice Kennedy's queasy, he writes his brief concurring opinions as well. You know, I agree with the majority, but only to go so far, right? And he, he often does this in, in many cases, the affirmative action cases, he does this uh, very often. Um, Kenji said a minute ago, he didn't break off, um, and he may not see any sort of, I don't know, dignity issues of being forced to join union. I don't, I, I really, I don't know. And in terms of whether Justice Kennedy uh, is in, interested in overturning precedents that people rely on, I think after Bergamo, he's permanently stopped for making any stare decisive arguments ever, ever, ever again uh, in terms of overturning you know, millennial-old institutions. So um, I, I don't think he'll, he'll flinch at, uh, at, at this case. And you know, we'll, I'm usually wrong about these things, but uh, they, they, they could rule against them, or they could take the narrow route that Kenji mentioned, just say, well, if you're a public sector employee, you opt out once, that's enough. So they may chip out the boot, but they may not kill it. But I don't think the unions um, will walk out of this one with a uh, complete victory. 
Thank you for that serene analysis. And that brings us to the last of our three cases, Fisher versus the University of Texas at Austin. Kenji, can you tell us about the background about this fascinating and important case in the Supreme Court for the second time? Why has it come back to the court? Sure. So this is a pretty storied case. You know, I think that uh, we really need to go back to uh, the Hopwood case, which was actually a um, Fifth Circuit case that was decided um, in um, the jurisdiction that covers Texas. And it said that racially conscious admissions policies are not permissible. So Texas pivoted, the University of Texas pivoted uh, to doing affirmative action by implementing what is known as the top 10% program. This is actually the state legislature that uh, enacted this law. And under that law, if you graduate in the top 10% of a Texas high school, you get automatic admission to the University of Texas uh, system. And it's actually very ingenious because it relies on the segregation of the Texas high schools. So it turns a great weakness of the high schools into a great strength at the university level because if you have a highly segregated high school system, say an all-black high school, then the top 10% of that high school is going to be black. And so that's a way of getting uh, diversity uh, while also uh, getting um, a very meritorious students into the system. Using that top 10% program, uh, the University of Texas was very successful in getting racial diversity. Uh, in 2003, uh, the United States Supreme Court decided the Grutter versus Bollinger case in which it uh, effectively overruled the Hopwood case in saying that uh, racially conscious admissions in a very narrowly tailored way were permissible. Uh, and in the wake of that, what the University of Texas did was to implement a uh, layered program where it retained the top 10% program to fill about 80% of its class, but the remainder of its class it filled using racially conscious admissions. So this first came up before the court, you know, a couple of terms ago, as you mentioned, Jeff, and, you know, it was argued in October and we were waiting and waiting for the decision and it didn't come down until June, which betokens some kind of strife among the justices, I think uh, it's fair to say, about what the outcome should be. And Justice Kennedy ended up writing a decision that uh, had uh, for seven justices uh, with Justice Ginsburg dissenting and Justice Kagan recused saying, look, we're just going to kick this can down the road a little bit because uh, what we see the Fifth Circuit as having done wrong and upholding the you know, bifurcated program of the top 10% program plus this racially conscious admissions uh, program for the remaining 20% uh, or so of students. What uh, the University of Texas, um, sorry, what the Fifth Circuit below did wrong in affirming that program was that it deferred both to the end of diversity in higher education and with regard to the means used to achieve that end, namely the top 10% program plus this racially conscious admissions program. And it said, well, we defer under our prior precedents, such as Grutter, to the end that is chosen. We do not defer with regards to means. And so it kicked it back downstairs for the Fifth Circuit to take a closer look as to whether or not the means that the University of Texas was using to get its end of uh, diversity, ethnic and racial diversity in its incoming classes was um, constitutionally proper. And, you know, Justice Ginsburg dissenting said, you know, this is, um, we, I think that the Fifth Circuit did exactly 
uh, what we've told it to do. So this is essentially, she didn't say this, but she implied that this is simply a stalling tactic. The Fifth Circuit made the interesting decision not to remand to the district court for a trial, but instead, you know, Jeff, you know, I feel very strongly about trials, so I, I don't mm. know whether that was a good decision or not. But essentially, said we think that we did this right too, so they agreed with Justice Ginsburg. Surprise, surprise! Mm -hmm. And so it affirmed, even under the new standard of giving deference to the end but not to the means. And now another appeal has been taken, and cert has been granted in the so-called Fisher two case uh, to decide uh, whether or not um, the um, uh, program is constitutional. So the Supreme Court was kind of relatively parsimonious last time in saying you've applied the wrong standard, so it didn't really go deeply into the merits. But this time, I think that the merits uh, of whether or not the program is constitutional or not are unavoidable. Thanks for that great introduction. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, when Kenji talked about his uh, affection for trials in his phenomenal book, Speak Now, Marriage Equality on Trials, he talks about uh, how fact-finding by lower courts can really centrally informed constitutional analysis. Please do check it out. Josh, let us focus on the means that Texas has chosen. So this top 10% plan guarantees admission to anyone in Texas who's in the top 10% of their high school class. Because of racial geographic segregation, this ensures a certain amount of racial diversity. But the University of Texas concluded that there were many classes, especially STEM, uh, science and technology and math cases, uh, classes, that uh, didn't reflect the population of the state as a whole. So they wanted to use 20% uh, of their admission in a more holistic process. They say that it's not about quotas, but focuses on the individual. And they say that just to limit it to the top 10% plan would support uh, the segregation of neighborhoods and wouldn't guarantee enough diversity. Um, how, I, I don't mean to keep focusing on Kennedy, but he has a crucial vote here. How is, how is Justice Kennedy likely to evaluate that plan as a constitutional matter. Well, actually, Jeff, I think the most important vote here is actually Justice Kagan, because she has no vote. Um, Justice Kagan, as, as Solicitor General, uh, advised in this case, so she's recused. We only have eight justices. Um, and that makes her very funny math of trying to do anything. So uh, in the event that the case, um, I mean, it ultimately comes out to Justice Kennedy, but in the event that, you know, you have the four conservatives and then Justice Kennedy joins the four liberals, you have what's the, the odd the oddity that is the four four firm, where basically it's a tie and you affirm the lower court. So effectively what you would need is a five to three vote by Justice Kennedy with the conservatives. Um, now a little bit of inside baseball. Um uh, in her book, uh, Joan Biscupic had a great book about Justice Sotomayor that came out about two years ago, and she actually had some inside baseball on this. And she says that originally the reason why this case took so long to decide was that Justice Sotomayor was holding it up, that she uh, had proposed to issue a very blistering dissent, which I think became her dissent in the Schuette case a year or two later, saying that you know this this policy is very much necessary, it's 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 you know it's constitutional, and that for whatever reason the court said that okay we'll we'll resolve this in narrow grounds, we'll give the Fifth Circuit another bite at the apple. This is again keeping with the Roberts Court of saying okay we won't strike everything down right away. We'll give you another, you know, shot across the bow. I think as Kenji said a minute ago, um, they sent it back to the Fifth Circuit. I don't think the Fifth Circuit did what they wanted them to do. And even if it is true that Texas says they can't achieve this by other means, I don't think that will matter much to the court because again, this is strict scrutiny, and strict scrutiny said has to be very narrowly tailored. You can't simply uh, take the school's word for it. And that was, I think, the error the Fifth Circuit made is that they effectively deferred to what UT said. 
And Justice Kennedy's opinion from a couple of years ago said, no, 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 we don't defer. Courts will independently assess it. So even if it's true that the university won't be able to get a more diverse class, that may not be enough for the court, especially since this is round two. They've already served notice that the, uh, that the fish rolling was on the chopping block and that uh, uh, they may say all you can do is uh, do what Michigan did and stick with uh, uh, you know, Justice O'Connor's 25-year prediction that we'll only need this another 12 years or so. That's great. Both the inside baseball is helpful and also your framing of the issues. I want our audience to really understand the constitutional arguments on, on both sides. Kenji, can you channel both the constitutional argument for why uh, Texas's uh, plan is consistent with the 14th Amendment and, and then argue against and say why it isn't? Yeah. So um, let me actually start with why it isn't, because that's the plaintiff's argument. So um, the plaintiff is arguing um, that the 14th Amendment um, really belongs to people as persons rather than as groups. And that means that race discrimination against a white individual, Abigail Fisher is white, uh, is just as problematic as uh, racial discrimination against a black person, or at least should draw the same level of constitutional scrutiny. So the people who adhere to this strict you know, colorblindness principle include at least Justice Scalia uh, and Justice Thomas. And uh, Chief Justice Roberts was also uh, saying in the Parents Involved case in 2008, which has occurred in a slightly different context, but also concerned um, uh, racial um, distribution in schools. It was secondary and, and elementary schools in that case. But he said the way to stop uh, discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discrimination on the basis of race. And so he made it really clear that I think that he adheres to this kind of colorblindness principle as well. What's um, the argument on the other side is that, you know, these two things are actually not the same, you know, that uh, colorblindness uh, as a principle uh, sounds really appealing, but that if we really look at why we have, you know, affirmative action, uh, it is because there are, you know, underrepresented groups um, historically within um, uh, organizations, within educational institutions. And as Justice O'Connor argued in the majority uh, in the Grutter case, um, was, uh, it's, it was a couple of things. One is that I think that even though the court has moved away from the remedial rationale per se of you know, reparations for underrepresented groups, she said that you know, the country's unfortunate history with race makes diversity on the basis of race particularly salient. So even though we're talking about the diversity rationale, I think we're oftentimes thinking that the remedial rationale is um, coming in so that the diversity rationale becomes a kind of Trojan horse for the remedial rationale. And then I, I also think that the argument for um, thinking about uh, these two contexts is different, for thinking about, you know, affirmative action is different from Jim Crow, uh, to put it slightly polemically, uh, would be to say that what we're really talking about here is actually bringing people together rather than um, pushing them apart. And so that the benefit of the diversity rationale is that if you're exposed to all kinds of diversity, not just racial diversity, but including racial diversity, that, you know, stereotypes about groups erode, you know, rubbing elbows with people diminishes prejudice against them. And this is something, this form of diversity is beneficial to everybody uh, within the environment and not just to uh, the people who are in the minority group. So that, you know, individuals who are white who would benefit just as much as individuals who are not. Uh, so I would say that those are the... Um, the arguments. I guess a couple of um, 
reactions, really not um, criticisms or objections, but just um, reactions to uh, a couple things Josh said. One is just an elaboration of what happens when a 4-4 happens. So when a 4-4 uh, vote happens, the lower court is affirmed, but what the court says is no precedential value, right? So if they do a 4-4, then essentially the status quo will remain as it has been. And that's essentially uh, the Grutter case in 2003, which created a kind of safe harbor and saying, if you're doing this for diversity grounds, um, diversity is a compelling governmental interest, at least in higher education, and using race as a plus factor is um, narrowly tailored to that compelling governmental interest in a way that would survive heightened scrutiny. And as Josh said, you know, Justice O'Connor said 25 years from now, I hope that affirmative action would not be necessary. So that was in 2003. So 25 years from now would be 2028. Um, so even she was thinking that there would be an end, you know, uh, state to this in which affirmative action would not uh, be necessary. But I also want us to think about where she's getting that 25 number, which is all she did was to take 2003 and subtract the date of the Backey case, which was 1978, which was seen as the fountainhead of affirmative action. So it's a fairly kind of arbitrary way of getting at that number. And what I take from that is that she was just trying to come up with a number of a generation, you know, that we should interpret 25 years as a kind of biblical 40, right, rather than as a 25 chronological years. Um, thanks so much, Kenji, for all that. Uh, Josh, lots to respond to. First, uh, p focus on Kenji's constitutional arguments. He made a number of claims about why diversity might be good for students of uh, both white and African-American students. Uh, what, what, what is the, the constitutional response to that? So I think the Supreme Court has said, and Justice O'Connor's opinion is, is definitely susceptible to many readings, but that <clears throat> it's, it's, it's really diversity because of the opportunities and exposures that can provide. The idea of, of remedying past injustice, the idea of reparations, um, these are arguments that Justice Thurgood Marshall championed in, in a number of his opinions, but that never carried a day by the Supreme Court. So at bottom, all you're left with is how diversity contribute in uh, institutions of higher education. And if the court finds that you can achieve the same diversity through more narrowly tailored means without such explicit use of race, um, then I think it's to be hard for UT Austin to defend this policy. Great. Well, I think it's time, gentlemen, for closing arguments. Kenji, if the court does strike down affirmative action in the Fisher case, will that mark uh, the writing on the wall as we've uh, used the expression for affirmative action more generally, and then please add any concluding thoughts you have you have about why this term of the Roberts Court will be significant for the future of the Constitution. Yeah. So um, thank you, Jeff. Uh, first of all, this has been a really um, enlightening session. So uh, first of all, just to um, respond, I actually agree with my um, my colleague Josh that. Uh, he's absolutely right. The remedial rationale has fallen into disfavor. Um, it's not completely gone, but the rule is that a governmental entity can only engage in remedial affirmative action uh, in order to remedy that it itself, remedy discrimination that it itself has engaged in that has continuing effects into the present. So he's absolutely right about that. What I was trying to articulate was that all of this is going to occur under the diversity rationale. But sometimes I see the diversity rationale as being a Trojan horse for kind of smuggling in concerns that sound more in remediation than not, and how the court will deal with that, uh, I think, is an interesting question. But to 
now to move to your question, Jeff, you know, what happens if this gets um, struck down under the Equal Protection Clause? Is this the death knell for affirmative action? Well, um, not immediately. Uh, it certainly could be the thin end of the uh, wedge, uh, or it could be further driving in the wedge that, you know, parents involved uh, started. Um, but the reason that I don't think that it would immediately uh, have ripple effects into the affirmative action landscape is that I think what the court would do, given that I don't view Grutter as being squarely in play, I think what they would say is, look, you know, Grutter is still good law, but you're doing well enough under this 10% program that you should not need this additional racially conscious program to achieve your ends. So what we're striking down is not the top 10% program, but rather this other you know, racially conscious program that you're using under the rubric, under the context of understanding that the top 10% program is there and is working. So if you think about the top 10% program, it's a program that only works once. I teach at a law school. You know, Josh teaches at a law school. This would not be a program that a law school could implement, and Grutter involved a law school as well, because colleges are not segregated in the same way that Texas high schools are segregated. Even at the college level, if you don't have segregated high schools, the top 10% program is not going to work. So the so-called race-neutral alternative, and I say so-called because, you know, it's hard for me to see that the top 10% program is so racially neutral, given that it was obviously implemented with the intent of increasing the racial diversity of the University of Texas. But let's grant that uh, there's uh, racial neutrality about the uh, top 10% program that isn't present in the racially conscious um, program that's being used, that's being layered on top of it. If we assume that something like the top 10% program has to be viable in order for um, the, the court to be able to strike down racially conscious affirmative action, then this doesn't do damage at least to uh, institutions like you know, law schools or other professional schools that can't draw on this. And it doesn't even hurt you know, public institutions that can't um, uh, do this because their high schools, the pool that they're drawing on is not as racially segregated as, it, as the schools in Texas are segregated. And then finally, you said, you know, is there any broad lesson to draw from this term? <laughs> I'm reminded at the end of uh, last term when, you know, we had um, the um, uh, Obergefell uh, case with same-sex marriage, legalizing same-sex marriage nationwide, uh, and then we had the big um, uh, Fair Housing Act case, and, you know, we had other sort of progressive cases, people saying, you know, I feel like I'm back in the Warren Court era. I feel like this is a really liberal court just kind of rolling my eyes and thinking like, you know, what planet are you on? Uh, because I don't think of this as, you know, a particular liberal court. And I think that, you know, comparing it to the Warren court is, is practically laughable. Uh, so I think that this is more of a return to type because what I said, you know, at the time was just wait until next term when we have affirmative action, possibly reproductive justice issues, you know, cases like Friedrichs uh, concerning um, uh, non-members, you know, of uh, public unions and the state of public unions, um, just wait until next term. So I think that this is going to be a much more, quote-unquote, conservative term than we saw last year. Wonderful. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Josh, last word to you. What is at stake in the Fisher case uh, for affirmative action? 
And uh, do you agree with Kenji that this, uh, well, and, 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 and what are your thoughts about uh, what this term will say about the future of the Roberts Court? Sure. So I think the, the, the aftermath of Fisher is actually another suit followed by Ed Bloom and company challenging affirmative action of private institutions. We know it's black-letter law that the protection clause only controls state institutions. But Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 has a provision that basically says you can't discriminate on the basis of race. Um, and Justice Rehnquist's decision 30 years ago in Bakke basically said that uh, the Civil Rights Act and protection are coterminous in terms of this. So if, in fact, the court imposes a strict scrutiny, that every single private institution which uses race quite explicitly, not holistically, explicitly, uh, Harvard, among others, will seriously need to reconsider their admission criteria. That's the nuke, right? That, that, that's why Ed Bloom is not necessarily asking to overturn uh, uh, Grutter here, because once you apply even Grutter, most private institutions, uh, he, well, his, his clients are a bunch of Asian Americans who are saying that Harvard discriminates against Asians by making it harder for them to get admitted. Um, uh, he has a case at UNC Chapel Hill as well. That's the next shoe to drop. Um, and uh, to, to wrap up the term, uh, Kenji's exactly right. I, I, you know, I wasn't alive during the Warren Court, but I sure felt it last year. Uh, and by one measure, the New York Times said this was the most liberal term since uh, the name of the chair that Kenji sits in, Earl Warren, sat in the middle, um, with cases like a Burgerfell on the uh, uh, fair housing case. Um, this case, will, this year, will have cases involving abortion, uh, the, the voting rights case. They might get rid of the, the fees for the public sector unions. One case, which I've been keeping a very close eye on, is the immigration case. I filed a couple briefs on that in the Fifth Circuit, whether the president's action in immigration is constitutional. If that one gets cert, that, that becomes a blockbuster overnight because it's a massive separation of powers case with a highly charged political valence. So I'm keeping my eye open for that. But um, uh, this, this term should be a little bit less worn, maybe a little bit more burger, uh, but either would be well done. <laughs> Excellent. On that note, let me thank you, uh, Josh Blackman and Kenji Yoshino, for an enlightening, civil, and nuanced discussion of the most hotly contested questions of the Supreme Court term if the opinions themselves are half as uh, thoughtful as this discussion, then the country will be in good shape. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much, Jeff. Today's show was edited and engineered by Jason Gregory. It was produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Joshua Weinberg and Daniele Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, Facebook.com backslash Constitution CTR and on our Twitter feed at Constitution CTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Send your questions, comments, and suggestions to editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do, which is constitutional education. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, a new podcast featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center, across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. The most recent episodes feature blockbuster conversations on religious liberty in America with top scholars of constitutional law and policy leaders in Washington and beyond. We the People is a member of the Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com Panoply. And finally, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. 
Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. And please join us again next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.